Welcome to Paychecks Thrive, a business podcast where you'll hear timely insights to help you navigate marketplace dynamics and propel your business forward. Here's your host, Gene Marks. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Thrive by Paychecks. My name is Gene Marks. Appreciate you joining me both in podcast format and on video format as well. Today, my guest is Adam Ozemek. Adam is with the Economic Innovation Group. Uh, he's the chief economist there. Is that correct, Adam? That's your, that, that is the official title, right? right? Uh, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, we are speaking to each other. Adam just told me he's in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I'm in Philly, so uh, almost neighbors. It's just a buggy right away. Uh, Adam, tell me a little bit about the Economic Innovation Group. And also, you mentioned before we started that you also own your own business as well. I'd be interested to hear about that, too. So the Economic Innovation Group, we're a public policy think tank in Washington, D.C., and we're focused on economic dynamism. So how do we make the economy and the labor market more competitive? Um, how do we get new entrepreneurs, new startups, um, and um, you know more innovation, that kind of thing? Uh, and then and, you know, we focus on issues like non-compete reform and uh, high-scale migration and um we were the uh, creators of the Opportunity Zones, if you're familiar with them. So that's uh, we get into a variety of public policy uh, and economic issues. And your business? Uh, it's a bowling alley uh, arcade restaurant called Decades in Lancaster. And uh, we opened this uh, a couple of years ago, me and some friends. So I have a, an economist hat and an entrepreneur hat that I wear. Very cool. That is very, very cool, which is great. I mean, I, um, you know, I do a lot of writing. So, you know, I write every week for like the Guardian and the Hill and the Philly Inquirer and a bunch of other places. But I'm also like yourself, a business owner. And, you know, I have 10 employees. So I cover small business. But, you know, you must feel the same way. I mean, selfishly, a lot of the issues that I deal with ultimately have an impact on my business. So I have a special interest in researching and writing about them. Is it the same with you? Yeah, it, it makes it more interesting. It also gives you, I think, some you know, granular insights that you might not otherwise have sort of as a, as an academic or a pundit, just in terms of understanding the complexity that business owners face. Sometimes things seem like they would be simple on paper, but um, when you're an actual business owner, they are uh, really complicated and confusing. For example, you know, this was an issue with uh, PPP, um, which seemed, uh, I think to a lot of policymakers, and to a lot of pundits and academics, like something that we really simple on paper. Um, and then, but, you know, you know, as a small business owner, like that's going to be complex and, you know, telling businesses they can only spend it on qualified purchases, for example, that sounds a lot. That's the kind of thing that like on paper in a white paper, well, that's super easy. Uh, this is going to go really smoothly. And, you know, as a business owner, you think not only is that not going to go smoothly, but it's going to discourage people from participating. And, you know, that's exactly what happened. With all due respect to PPP, which wasn't something like that was needed, but that's just you know one example where you know the on the ground insights can be helpful. I find uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, a lot of times, policies are made in Washington or even at the state level here in Pennsylvania um, by people that really have never run a business before or you know signed a payroll check, and they don't you know they don't really understand sometimes the specifics of how that impacts, um, particularly small businesses. You mentioned, so the Economic Innovation Group does uh, a lot of work uh, researching and studying, and then I'm assuming making recommendations regarding immigration policies yeah, that's in right. the country. Tell us a little bit about that work. 
So we're focused on high-skill immigration because um, it's our belief that this is a different kind of policy. It's really not the same policy as um, overall immigration. Uh, it should be thought of as being a separate issue for a few reasons. One, um, politically, people think of it differently. So while uh, you know there's divided support for overall immigration, depending on how you phrase the question and who you're asking, when it comes to high-scale immigration, uh, there's unanimous uh, public support, really very, very high public support from both parties. Um, you know, over 70% of the population supports more high-scale immigration, um, majorities from both parties. So politically, people just think of it differently. They understand that high-scale immigrants are entrepreneurs, they're innovators, you know, they start businesses, they start Fortune 500 companies, they're super-skilled workers. They have really high fiscal impacts. And so people understand that, and that makes it politically different. But also economically, you know, we don't have a lot of policy levers for entrepreneurship, for innovation, um, for skilled workforce development. And to the extent that we do have these levers, they're highly uncertain. They take a long time to work, and they can be really expensive. Um, in high school immigration with a high probability creates more inventors, more entrepreneurs, more skilled workforce. It's, you know, they, they come here and they do that. It's very, it's very simple. It's not like a stretch. Um, there's not really a lot of uncertainty around whether it's going to create those positive impacts. It just is. And it does that with a positive fiscal impact. So it's a very, very unique and important policy. Um, and that's why we prefer to focus on that. One of the biggest fears, uh, you know, that people have about even high-skilled immigration is that you have people that come here, um, they, maybe they go to university here, or they spend a few years learning, you know, learning the trade, whether it's in tech or manufacturing, and then they leave and they bring that knowledge, you know, and those skills back to their, their own countries. Do you feel that that is an issue that needs to be addressed? Or is that something that just comes along with, you know, it, it just, part of the program when you have a, a, an immigration program that's targeted at high school people? Well, so how that shows up in um, national you know, GDP statistics is that's an export. We're exporting services to other countries, educational okay. services. So I think in that sense, uh, it should be thought of as a positive. The other thing is I really don't think it, ser it serves the U.S. national interest for the rest of the world to stay poor. I think that the the richer the rest of the world gets, the more wealthy trading partners we have. They create innovations on their own. You know, there's there's a lot of products and services and inventions that U.S. households enjoy that that came from other countries. And um, you know, to the extent that trade, free trade, creates disruption for American workers, it tends to be concentrated in the low skill part of the workforce. Right? It's, you have a country like China, which has, has a really large low skilled workforce enter the global trading system, created disruption for uh, low-skilled U.S. workers. Um, you know, as China moves up uh, and becomes uh, more high-skilled, uh, they're going to be buying more of our exports, consuming more of our goods. So I, I think a, a more inventive, more prosperous world is something that, that, that we should welcome. You look at countries like you know, Israel and, Ty and Taiwan are both very strong allies of ours, um, very innovative countries produce a lot of global goods and services that are very valuable. And a huge part of their growth came from 
uh, immigrants who moved here, went to our schools, got graduate degrees, advanced degrees, went to work in Silicon Valley and other tech companies, and then returned to their home countries and started um, companies over there. And I, I, you know, you ask, do do I think that the world would be better if Israel and Taiwan were still developing countries like they were not too long ago? And I don't think that's the case. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's maybe I'm naive, but um, even, you know, the countries that we are such rivals with, you know, like China, for example, I mean, you know, the more people, particularly younger people or skilled people that come here and learn and work for a few years, then even they go back to China. I just have to believe it's human nature to be a little bit more predisposed or a little bit more empathetic to the, you know, the American way. I just, I, I kind of feel like it's, it, it reduces uh, tensions between countries, not increases them. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, I, I feel like a more open policy towards highly skilled workers um, would, would help relations longer term. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, how to, you know, steer and guide authoritarian countries towards democracy and freedom is definitely outside of my expertise as an economist. But, you know, I think we can certainly look around the world and see countries that have stayed poor and that has not helped them become more open and more free. Um, you know, certainly Cuba and North Korea, if you think uh, keeping authoritarian countries low income is a policy success, then those would count. And I don't, I don't think that that's helped them become freer. Fair enough. Um, staying on the high skilled workers, the work that you're doing for immigration, you know, we have people that are listening to this or watching this that do want to take advantage of higher skilled immigrants or they, they, they have, I mean, there's 11 million open jobs. And a lot of these are white collar jobs, you know, technical jobs and skilled jobs. What, what are you guys proposing um, to happen that could happen? And the second part of that is what, what, what are the, what are the chances that we could see in this administration, at least the next two years, some type of immigration legislation that would focus on highly skilled workers? Yeah. So the details of the policy roadmap we haven't published yet, but what I can say is that I think we should be doing two things at once, uh, increasing the quality of high scale immigration in terms of ensuring that the best and the brightest are who we allow in. And then when you do that, it makes a strong case for increasing the quantity of high scale immigration. So I think, I think that there is scope to do both to, I mean, the immigrants that we uh, allow in already on uh, high scale immigration programs are very high skilled. They're very inventive. They're very entrepreneurial. But uh, we can do better still. And then when we do that, uh, by make, just by making the system work better. And when we do that, it makes a strong case for significantly expanding high school immigration. So uh, details TBD. But uh, for now, I think those are the best ways to think of it. The political aspects um, or the political odds. Uh, now we're definitely outside my area of expertise. So um, you're, you're not willing to even make a prediction or a guess as to whether or not uh, there's going to be any type of legislation that would, uh, that would uh, address this? Uh, I mean, what I can tell you from a, a data-driven perspective is that mm-hmm. there is strong bipartisan support for more skilled immigration. And um, in a sane political world, that seems like something that should eventually deliver uh, policy success. I've learned that, uh, you know, the way to address a big problem is to break it down into smaller problems and address those smaller problems. And, you know, we have this big problem of immigration, but what you're proposing makes, you know, complete sense. Say, well, let, let's break this down, immigration, and let's focus on something that we can agree on and maybe get, you know, move something forward, high-skilled immigrants as opposed to the low-skilled immigrants. 
Let's turn to low skilled immigrants. You've been spending your time and you're putting together a policy paper on, on a higher skill. Are you ignoring the problem of low skilled immigrants? Is that just an issue that, you know, your group is just saying that's just not something we're gonna we're gonna, you know, talk about, or is that something that you also intend to research? No, it's really just outside our scope for now because it's it is a different uh, it's a different policy. It's not a it's not a, a, uh, an innovation policy. It's not a productivity or entrepreneurship policy. You start to when you're dealing with the issue of low skill immigration, you start to get into a lot of values judgments. Um, right. You know, because it's inherently we're going to be dealing with refugees, and that's obviously very important. Um, but that's a that's a very you know a lot. It's a very value laden question. Um, yeah. which makes it very different from something like innovation and entrepreneurship, which is sort of, you know, nuts and bolts, uh, positive economic benefit uh, that we can think very, we can think about it easily because we can think about it selfishly, right? Like, let's just maximize the economic benefit. Once you start getting into questions of, you know, um, refugees and people from uh, that are fleeing uh, countries with a lot of political and economic problems, um, it's just a different, it's a different policy altogether. It's a different challenge. You know what I'm surprised to hear that from you, Adam, is that it's just because you, um, I mean, given the, the business that you own, you know, a bowling alley and, you know, something in the food establishment businesses, I mean, you know, you are, I'm sure you're reliant on a lot of lower skilled or hourly workers and would be thrilled if there was an opportunity to increase that supply of workers, you know. Um, so, you know, that doesn't hit home for you? I, I personally, I'm in favor of of, of all sorts of immigration. Uh, I think the U.S. Uh, economy, the U.S. should be very welcoming to immigrants of of all skill types. Uh, when you're talking about low skill immigration, though, you're facing two two policy challenges that I think will need to be addressed as part of the solution. One is the border crisis, which is a genuinely difficult problem because um, right now it largely involves refugees and people claiming refugee status. That's a very difficult situation. There's no there's no easy solutions there. Um, certainly not the case that, that you can uh, build a fence and that will solve the problem. Um, doesn't mean we don't also need a fence, um, but that there, there's a real difficult challenge there. And the other, of course, is um, undocumented workers who have been here for a very long time and have uh, you know established roots and families in this country. Those are difficult policy challenges what do you do there so i'm i'm very uh very in favor of immigrants of all types i think they have positive impacts on the u.s economy but when you talk about what to actually do there you you have to address those challenges yeah yeah i think the the issue like immigration just like so many other big issues is that whatever if anything ever gets decided upon there there's going to be a group of people that will be unhappy I mean, that's just a given somebody will be unfair and um, I think that just has to be accepted if, if we're ever going to have any kind of movement forward. Okay, let's move to um, non-competes because you said that you guys also do research and policy on there. Um, recently, the Federal Trade Commission issued, correct me if I'm wrong, they, they issued a uh, proposed rule, correct? Like this yeah. is right now up for comment um, to eliminate, this is at you know, federal levels so nationally, uh, the use of non-compete clauses or agreements in employment contracts. So I hire, so I run a technology firm. Um, we ain't Facebook or Google, obviously. Um, but if I hire somebody and I have an employment agreement with that employee, which has a clause in it, or I have a separate agreement that says, if you leave my company, you're not allowed to work for any of my competitors, uh, even within a certain region or even nationally for five years of time. That's been like sort of standard operating procedure for, you know, for me actually for years. 
And a lot of companies have had similar types of clauses and agreements, but that that could change. And I'm wondering if you can give us your thoughts on that and what type of impact that that could have. Well, it, yeah, it's been standard operating procedure in some places, but the reality is if you look at the most uh, innovative state uh, in the country, the home of Silicon Valley, where, um, you know, I, where Google and Facebook uh, were essentially born, uh, they don't allow non-competes there. And so, you know, when we look at like a place like Silicon Valley, you know, the most innovative hub in the history of this country, it it grew and succeeded in the absence of uh, non-competes. And I and, uh, and economic historians would also argue that that was not just, it didn't happen despite the absence of non-competes. It happened because of the absence of non-competes. If you look at the history there, um, you know, co- companies spinning off of other companies is a huge, huge part of where a lot of uh, innovation came from. So it, Intel was created because uh, Gordon Moore uh, left Fairchild Semiconductor. And Fairchild Semiconductor was created because they left um, Shockley's uh, lab. And so, and then from Fairchild, there were dozens and dozens of other companies, hugely innovative semiconductor companies, um, created as spinoffs and competition. And I think that that would have been difficult if all of those employees had been tied to non-competes. Um, and so I think that, that that's a really important uh part of economic history is that kind of dynamism and we need more of that in the economy the other thing i would say is how, how long by the way if I can answer, how how long has that been going on in california i mean it's been decades correct yeah for a very very long yeah. time yeah gotcha. through, through the history of silicon valley the, the other thing is if you look at another industry where this has always uh been banned is is legal this is there's no state in the nation where lawyers are allowed to have non-competes uh and the idea is you you don't want it if 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 someone leaves a firm, you don't want that to be disruptive to the um, to the, the lawyer-client relationship. And so non-competes have never been allowed there. And uh, it doesn't seem like it's causing problems. So if, if you know, I think both of those are, are provide very good examples of how we can not only exist without non-competes, but thrive without them. So why the big debate? Why is there such a big backlash? Do you think, is this just a, a political thing that, you know, you've got a Democratic administration that's proposing this? And so therefore, you know, its opponents are going to just immediately, you know, have that sort of, you know, backlash towards it. Or do you think there's any justification uh, to argue against the banning of non-competes? Well, I think people are concerned about two different kinds of things. Um, On the low-skilled side of the labor market, their concerns tend to be that employers need something like this in order to recoup the cost of training low-skilled workers. Right. And, and I, what I would say to that is, you know, the real value of the minimum wage federally is like at a historic low. Right. So I don't think we have a really binding minimum wage issue there. There are other ways to recoup the costs of, 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 of training there. Right? Then the other area they think of is on the high skilled side. Well, this is going to reduce innovation because firms are going to hold their secrets more tightly and they're not going to be willing to share them with more employees or something like that. And and what I would say is I I don't think that that's really plausible at the firm level that they're going to hold all their secrets tighter from all their employees, right? Like that doesn't make sense. Is it going to reduce the incentive to create new innovative ideas? I don't see that either. Again, pointing to the history of Silicon Valley and, you know, across the economy, we have older firms 
than we ever have. We have less entrepreneurship. We have less dynamism. And so I think, if you, you know, where do we have problem? Where do we have a problem? It's it's really not well described by firms can't capture enough of the benefits of their own innovation. It's better described by we don't have enough competition and turnover and entrepreneurship and churn. So I'm in favor of policies leaning in that direction. You know, it's funny, too, because I mentioned that, you know, I've always had a non-compete clause, you know, in, in our employment agreements. One time in the past 20 plus years I've been running this business, I did have somebody that left me, an employee that left me and went to work for a direct competitor uh, in Philadelphia. And you know what, Adam, like, I didn't even pursue it, you know, I mean, right? I mean, there it's it's one thing in theory to have these things in writing, but, you know, the economic justification of going after this guy or his employer... Yeah, it was too much of a time suck, and it wasn't even worth it. And frankly, I also resigned myself saying, like, all right, fine, let him go and work for my competitor. We're still better than these guys, and, you know, that shouldn't stop me from doing my – so there is, like, a theory versus reality thing about non-competes, you know? Yeah, I don't I don't think employers actually value it that highly because, um, yeah. you know, there's other ways to get at this. You know, you can, you know uh, – Pay your employees. Pay your employees more. (laughs) Yeah, pay pay them bonuses for staying. You know, pay. Right. It's like there's a lot of there's a lot of different aspects of the employer employee uh, agreement and relationship, and um, I just don't think you need this. And I I think it's sort of like it works as like a very kind of soft clutch where it just it prevents a certain amount of turnover despite being not worth that much to the employers themselves. Yeah, I agree. All right, in the few minutes that we've left, um, let me. I, I wanted to ask you just a, like a general question about the old, the overall labor market. I mean, Adam, every client I go to, uh, I do a lot of you know, speaking at associations. So, you know, inflation and supply chain has been obviously a huge issue for the past two years. Labor continues to be that big issue. You know, we have 11 million unfilled jobs. Millions of people have left the workforce. Uh, even before COVID, there was a you know an extraordinary number of open jobs as well. But still, you know, this is at a historical high. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. You must get asked this, you know, why is that? You know, why do we have so many unfilled jobs? And where did, where do you think all these jobs, and no one can seem to give me a straight answer as to where they think jobs went, you know, after COVID. And I guess there's no one answer. It's, it's a variety of things. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on where, where the people went and if you think they'll ever come back. I would divide it into uh, two types of, we can use the term shortage for lack of a better descriptor, two types of, you know, lack of workers. One is what you observed pre-pandemic, which was in 2019 and felt like a pretty tight labor market, right? I would say that a lot of what businesses were complaining about was the absence of a problem. So from the Great Recession through 2019, we had weak labor markets. And you had weak wage growth, you had uh, relatively low employment rates, and really that's best described as like a decades-long recovery from the Great Recession. And what we were starting to get in 2018, 2019, I don't even think we got all the way there, was actually a genuinely tight labor market. And it was just a slow, long recovery from the Great Recession. And for some employers are going to view that as being a negative. But the days when you can just post a job opening and have people line up, I don't think those days are coming back. And I think that's a good thing. And you got I understand from a business's perspective how this can feel bad, but you've got to zoom out. You've really got to zoom out because, you know, like you said, I have a business and 
uh, we hire like a lot of, you know, relatively low skilled workers and some skilled workers obviously as well. But like as an employer, it may feel nice to be able to be, Oh, I can just post that job application anytime I want. I know there's going to be a line of people out there, but that's a sign of an unhealthy economy. And when you have a tighter labor market, you have higher wage growth that may pinch you on the labor market side, but that means more money in people's pockets that they're going to be spending. It means also that people are less likely to ask the government to try to deliver them prosperity through, you know, often poorly working regulations. And, uh, you, you know, we don't, we don't want people to be so upset with their economic prospects that they're asking the government to turn things upside down for them to make it better, right? Like we want people to be satisfied with the wages that they're earning to feel like there are a lot of good jobs opportunities out there that it's easy to find a job. And we've just got to accept that as employers, what we felt from 2008 through 2019 is not coming back. And that's a good thing. You know, what felt good to us felt bad to a lot of people. Now I would hold that aside from what's happened over the pandemic. Now, what's happened over the pandemic has been a shortage of workers uh, that is in part policy driven, right? We gave out a lot of stimulus. We had very high uh, unemployment replacement rates. Um, It was difficult for uh, landlords to evict people. Um, And so like a combination of a lot of things put a lot of money in people's pockets. Plus, you know, obviously uh, COVID itself pushed people out of the labor force, ongoing fears of COVID, long COVID, childcare issues. It's a whole bunch of stuff that pulled people out of the labor market. And that has created unsustainable labor market shortages. And what was happening in 2019 was, was like what we want. Like that's like the recipe for prosperity, for, you know, middle-class job growth, strong wages. That's what we want. What we have over the last two years is not sustainable. It's inflationary. And that's indeed what we've seen. And so we need people to come back to work. Um, and they are. I mean, we added half a million jobs like the last month. Um, people are coming back to work. They're just not coming back as fast as we thought that they were. And that continues to it, it continues to be um, less workers than we thought. And some of it is too much demand, right? Like the economy was overheated. People were pot- trying to buy more things than the economy could make. And so that creates uh, more job openings than the economy can fill. But you still have this labor shortage. And I, I do think it's getting better and it will continue to get better. But there's no doubt that it's taking more time to correct than uh, most economists would have, would have expected. You know, Paychex did a study uh, they just released recently showing that um, other, the people they surveyed, one in six people that are retired um, are considering coming back to work now, um, which is you know, many factors contributing to that decline in household wealth, the markets, the retirement mm-hmm. savings not being what they thought it would be and probably their spouses kicking them out of the house because they're driving them nuts. But, um, I mean, that could also be uh, your source for, for companies, you know, bringing back some of those retired workers. Um, that remains to be seen. Adam Azamek is the chief economist at the Economic Innovation Group. You can follow his company at Innovate Economy on Twitter. And, Adam, what is your website? Uh yeah, you can find me on Twitter as well at uh, Modeled Behavior is my handle. And our website is EIG.org. All right. That's great. Hey, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great conversation. Uh, I got to me. like, Yeah, I got to like a third of the questions I wanted to ask. So we definitely have to talk again in the future. But we'll connect. And um, I really do appreciate your insights. 
Do you have a topic or a guest that you would like to hear on Thrive? Please let us know. Visit payx.me forward slash Thrive Topics and send us your ideas or matters of interest. Also, if your business is looking to simplify your HR, payroll, benefits, or insurance services, see how Paychex can help. Visit the resource hub at paychex.com forward slash works. That's W-O-R-X. Paychex can help manage those complexities while you focus on all the ways you want your business to thrive. I'm your host, Gene Marks, and thanks for joining us. Till next time, take care. This podcast is property of Paychex Incorporated 2023. All rights reserved.